0: Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Genesis chapter 45 this morning. Genesis chapter 45. We're going to begin again on our series on God made it for good, the life of Joseph. Genesis chapter 45. I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about family reunions. You know, family reunions can be very interesting events, to say the least. Uh, someone has observed that some family trees have beautiful leaves and some have just a bunch of nuts. <laughs> <laughs> not going to make any further comment than that, but um, Jackie Drew, an award-winning writer and humor columnist, once wrote a piece called The Five Phrases. Of the family reunion and I, I ran across this this past week, I Wanted to share just a small uh, portion of it. Uh, she writes family reunions are a charming phenomenon, awash in warm feelings and cold sweat. We like to occasionally get together with our kinfolk, those who are on our, at our end of the gene pool. Kinfolk are dangerous individuals who can recite all our embarrassing faults, who know about every youthful transgression, who can provide blackmail material to our children. If we were smart, once we'd grown up and escaped, we would never go near these people again. But many of us are drawn to cousinly confabs like moths to dysfunctional family flames. And based on my attendance at several such events, I've determined there are five phrases to the typical family reunion. She said the first is the meet and greet phrase. That's when everyone is on his or her best behavior. All a little hesitant, a little shy. We suddenly assess each other, trying to gauge who's gained the most weight, who's lost the most hair, who's driving the nicest car. We all confess astonishment at how fast the kids are growing up. At my last reunion, most of the kids were teenagers who looked horrified at just being there. They huddled together for protection. Cell phones slipped open. Frantically sending text messages to their friends, begging to be rescued. She comes down to the second phrase called the remember when phrase. This is the phrase that causes the teens to actually writhe in agony. I remember experiencing agony myself at earlier reunions, but now I quite enjoy the remember wins. Many reunions she continues in this article degenerate to the third phrase church state squabbling. True to form, my family began discussing religion and politics, and things got heated. First names of presidential candidates were tossed about around as weapons. I'll pray for you, said one on the right side of the political spectrum, "To one on the left. You need all the help you can get. Wisely, before things really got out of hand, we moved into the fourth phrase, segregation of the sexes. This happens at every reunion I've ever attended. The men go one way and the women go the other, and usually the groups start out by complaining about each other. The men's conversation, though, only lasts about 30 seconds. One of them sighs heavily, shrugs his shoulders, and says a single word weighted with all the necessary meaning, women. All the other men nod their heads in agreement, and then they move on to something more important like sports. The ladies, on the other hand, will devote hours to dissecting the failings of their men. We move on in the article. The final phrase comes. We are emotionally waterlogged from swimming in the gene pool and our family ties strengthened. We say our goodbyes. Soon the reunions will become part of the remember wins. Before we know it, the teens will be the middle agers and I'll be one of the old fogies. And so I thought that was an interesting article keep that in mind at your next family reunion. Just see what phase you're in, what what phase you're in as you go throughout. But you might be wondering, Preacher, why all the talk about reunions? Well, we're going to go to a family reunion this morning. If you'll think back real hard to our last study on the life of Joseph, we saw the time came when he revealed his identity to his brothers. He said to them these words, I am Joseph. And just to refresh your memory and bring you back up to speed, let's begin reading there in chapter 45, beginning at verse number one. It says this, then Joseph could not refrain himself before all of them that stood by him. And he cried, cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall be neither earing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now is not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. You remember, we studied how he revealed his identity and all that took place there. Now, when we come to verse number nine, we see where the planning for this family reunion, the ultimate family reunion, as one writer called it, how it really takes off. I want you to notice, first of all, today, the sending out of the invitations beginning there in verse 9. The sending out of the invitations. Notice they were signed by Joseph. Look at verse 9. Haste ye and go up to my father and say unto him, Thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not, and thou shalt draw in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be nearer to me, thou and thy children, and thy children's children, and thy flocks, and thy herds, and all that thou hast. And there will I nourish thee. For yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. And behold, your eyes see in the eyes of my brother Benjamin. And it is my mouth that speaketh unto you. And you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that ye have seen. And ye shall haste to bring down my father hither. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. They were signed by Joseph. I want you to notice the urgency and the emphasis upon God in those verses. He talks about go up unto my father, verse nine, say, thus saith unto thy, uh, thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me Lord over all Egypt. He goes through, he's urgently encouraging them to go and get his father and all their families. In verse 10, notice the invitation included the entire family. Thou shalt draw in the land of Goshen. Thou shalt be near unto me, thou Thy children, thy children's children, thy flocks, thy herds, all that you have. It was a broad invitation to all of his family and all that they had. Notice verse 11 a promise. He says there, I will nourish thee. I will nourish thee. I will care for you. I'm concerned about you. I don't want you to starve to death. I don't want you to grow into poverty because of this famine that's going to go on for five more years. And then he embraces and he weeps with Benjamin, his true blood brother, had not seen him for so long. Then he kissed and wept with all of his brethren. And I want you to notice something here, beloved. There's no bitterness in Joseph. There's no grudges here. There's no hatred. Why? Because look at verse 8 again. Joseph said, it was not you that sent me hither, but God. God sent me ahead. God paved the way. This was God using even your evil to bring about the ultimate good for us. To bring me to Egypt and to enable us to live throughout this famine and even serve Pharaoh and the Egyptians. This wonderfully gracious invitation was signed by Joseph, but we might say next it was sealed by Pharaoh. Look at verse 16. And the fame thereof was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brethren are come. And it pleased Pharaoh well and his servants. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, Say unto thy brethren, this do ye, lay your beast and go, get you into the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come unto me. And I will give you the good of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. Now thou art commanded, this do ye, take you wagons out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come, also regard not your stuff, for the good of all the land of Egypt is yours. Signed by Joseph, sealed by Pharaoh. He was delighted. Pharaoh was delighted to hear uh, that his family had come, his brethren had come. He was delighted to be able to bless the family of Joseph. Why? Joseph had literally saved their lives. He had saved the Egyptians. He had saved Pharaoh's life, if you will, from starvation. Joseph had been such a blessing to Egypt and to Pharaoh. The least he could do was to welcome with open arms the family of Joseph. These invitations were signed by Joseph, sealed by Pharaoh, but they were delivered by the brothers. Begin reading at verse 21. And the children of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons. Now, listen, don't get in your mind rickety old wagons that are barely able to move. These would have been wagons out of Pharaoh's fleet. I mean, some grand things here. Give them wagons according to the commandment of Pharaoh and gave them provision for the way he provided for them. He gave them gifts and provisions. Verse 22 to all of them. He gave each man changes of raiment. He gave them some new clothes. To Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of raiment. And to his father, he sent gifts. After this manner, ten asses laden with the good things of Egypt and ten she asses laden with corn and bread and meat for his father, by the way. So he sent his brethren away. He sends them away provisions and these gifts. And it says they departed. But look at verse 24. And he said unto them, see that you fall not out by the way. He sends them off with visions and these gifts, but he also sends them off with a warning. (laughs) You know, Joseph knew his brethren. Now imagine all they've experienced in a short time, thinking everything was against them, then they realize everything's for them. It'd be an opportunity to argue, to fuss, to fight, to pass the blame, to pass the buck. He says, don't fall out by the way. Go home. Go straight home. Get my father. Get your families. Come back to me. Do not fall out by the way. Now, notice what it says in verse 25. And they went up out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob, their father. Do you remember many years ago, these brothers, they had brought back something to their father and it was not a pleasant thing. It was what? The coat of Joseph that appeared to have been torn in shreds and dipped in blood. And he thought, of course, Joseph has been slain by a wild animal. He had given up all hope that Joseph was alive. But notice what it says in verse 26. They told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. Now, put yourself in Joseph's sandals for a moment. You know, he's delighted to see his children coming in the first place. He's excited to see all the brothers coming. And he sees all this stuff with them. And then they give him these words. Joseph is yet alive. And it says in the verse 26, and Joseph's heart. Fainted. Can you imagine? It fainted. It says he believed them not. This is an impossible message. This is an impossibility. We see shock. Understandably so. We see unbelief on his part. But notice verse 27. And they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. And when he saw, notice this, when he saw the wagons, which Joseph had sent to carry him, he saw proof. The wagons. The spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. There was excitement. There was belief, verse 28. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. What a wonderful thing. The sending out of the invitation. As I noticed, secondly, here this morning, traveling to the reunion. Traveling with your family is an interesting event anyway, isn't it? Traveling to the reunion, notice Jacob's pause on these travels in verse one of chapter 46. And Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifice unto the God of his father, Isaac, excited as he was by the prospect of seeing his son, his beloved son, Joseph. No doubt he was anxious to get to Egypt and throw his arms around Joseph. Jacob paused. He paused at Beersheba, and there he spent some time with God. And I want us to pause with them just a few minutes this morning and consider a couple of things about Beersheba. Consider the place. Beersheba lay on the southern border border of Canaan. the place. But notice the past. What about this Beersheba? What's going on here? Well, I want you to see if it's a, it's a significant place. Max Anders said, Abraham had planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, where he called upon the name of the Lord. You read that in Genesis 21:33. Later, Isaac also built an altar here and called on the name of the Lord after he had appeared to him in Genesis chapter 26. Anders said, perhaps Isaac's altar was still present when Jacob arrived and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. The place, the past. But what's the purpose here? Look again at verse 1. It says, And Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. So we know he's offering sacrifices. But why did he pause and do this? Why did he stop in this journey at this place and offer these sacrifices? The great prince of preacher Spurgeon said that uh, at, at least three reasons why he would do this. First, To purge his household of any sin that might might lie upon it. You know, Jacob did that earlier at Bethel. And Spurgeon says there's no reason not to think he would do it again. That's in Genesis 35. He says, secondly, he would pause and offer sacrifices in order to give thanks. He was going to Egypt to see Joseph. He thought Joseph was dead a long time ago. And yet he's alive, it's a time for rejoicing, and it's a time to offer thanksgiving to God. And he said third, and the main reason he stopped and worshipped, was to seek the mind of God in his move. To seek the mind of God in his move. beloved, think about what was going on here. He was going to Egypt. Egypt, as Matun reminds us, was where his grandfather made some serious mistakes. Egypt is where Isaac, his father, was forbidden to go in Genesis 26, 2. He said the Egyptians had a notorious reputation for idolatry and immorality. And Jacob uses wisdom and offers sacrifice to the Lord at Beersheba in gratitude to God, but also to seek the mind of God. On this move, you can understand why he'd be a little hesitant, a little afraid to go down to Egypt. Now, this is where a lot of us fail. We set out on a journey, and we're going someplace, and we never once pause and consider the Lord. We see the opportunities. We see the projections, we see the directions, and all those things look good. So off we go, never once considering God, never once praying about it. I want you to hear something today. Listen, a promotion, a relocation, even a pay increase, a raise is not necessarily good if it means stepping outside the will of God for your life. We must move very carefully. We must move very prayerfully. Even if everything seems wonderful and it seems it's the greatest blessing that could ever come. We must pause and seek the mind of God in these matters. And that is where we so often fail. We like to include God in hindsight. What do you mean, preacher? We like to think this way. We say, Lord, bless my plans. Bless my plans, here's where I'm going, here's what I'm doing, here's here's what we're going to do there. Bless my plans, rather than including him on the forefront by saying, Lord, what would thou have me to do? Not in hindsight, beloved, in the forefront. God, show me the way. Where are you in your life at this moment, friend? Is it just the Lord on Sunday, and then he's forgotten the rest of the week? Could it be this morning you need to pause like Jacob did, like Israel did, and offer some things to the Lord? We see Jacob's pause. Notice next God's promise. I love this. Verses two through four. The Lord says, and God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt. I will also surely bring thee up again, and Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. I am God. And he made some promises there. He said, first of all, there's no need to fear going into Egypt. No need to fear. He said, also, I'll make of thee a great nation. We know about that, don't we? We know that he did that. He said, also, I am God. I'll be with you while you're in Egypt. And I love this part. He says, I'll bring you up out of Egypt again. I'll bring you up again. He said, wait a minute. If you read on, Jacob died in Egypt. But his promise was fulfilled in two ways. His body was taken back to Canaan for burial. And likewise, he also returned in a sense when his descendants went back in the days of Joshua. As you read ahead in the Bible. And then he also promises him what? A peaceful death. The last part of verse four says, Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. What does that mean? Well, Basil Atkinson said, Joseph would close his father's eyes at the time of his death. Joseph would be with him when he died. Notice the personal promise graciously made to Jacob, which would compensate him for the long years of sorrow and mourning for Joseph. God cares for the personal needs of his people, of his servants. Wonderful promises from God. And then we notice on this travel, Jacob's posterity beginning at verse five, it says he rose up from Beersheba and his sons carried with his father and their little ones and their wives and their wagons. And then it goes through to begin to list out the children and it goes through uh, Jacob's posterity. We come down. In verse 26, all the souls that came of Jacob into Egypt, which came out of his loins, besides Jacob's son's wives, all the souls were three score and six. And the sons of Joseph, which were born in Egypt, were two souls. All the souls of the house of Jacob, which came into Egypt, were three score and ten. And he sent Judah before him unto Joseph to direct his face into Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. We have the invitations being sent out. We have the traveling to the reunion. Now notice thirdly and finally today together Again. Together again, look at verse 29 and Joseph made ready his chariot. Can you imagine the excitement that must have pulsated through his body to realize his father was there and he was going to see him? And he went up to meet Israel, his father to Goshen and noticed the sight here. Noticed the sight and presented himself unto him. Wouldn't you love to have been a fly on a wagon wheel that day to see what took place as these Two long lost family members, the beloved father, the beloved son, are joined together again. Glorious sight. Notice the sight. Notice, secondly, the sobbing. It says he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. How long's a good while? A good while. That's how long it is. A long time. And they sobbed and they cried and they rejoiced together. Notice the satisfaction at verse 30. And Israel said unto Joseph, now let me die. Why? I've seen thy face because thou art yet alive. Alive. Think about that, parents, moms and dads. You think your child is dead. And now you hold them in your arms alive. Would that excite you? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Glory to God. You know, I was thinking the same excitement should be true when that child comes to Jesus Christ to Savior. You. you. know why? Because they were dead in their sin. And the moment they repent and trust Christ, they're alive forevermore. Glory to God. Now, what do we do with this story? I'm going to leave them in that loving embrace. What do we do with this story? What, what, what do we do with it? What do we learn? Several things and we're done. First of all, it's a reminder This morning that we serve a sovereign God, when you look at Joseph's life and all the various pieces, you look at his mistreatment, you look at the famine in Egypt and you look at his family coming to Egypt, it all looks like individual events. But in reality, beloved, there are actually pieces of the puzzle that God was putting together. He was actually moving his people to Egypt and there he would make of them a great nation. And he would ultimately deliver them with a strong hand. Listen to what he said. He was literally fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Listen to Genesis 15, 13 through 15. And he said unto Abram, know of a surety that thy seed, listen, thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them. They shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with a great substance, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in good old age. He had made a promise way back to Abraham that your seed, your posterity are going to be as strangers in a strange land, serving 400 years, but I will deliver them with a strong hand. And of course we go and we can read about that throughout the rest, some more of the books of the Old Testament there. God is sovereign. And we can rest in that fact today, beloved, that God is in control. God is in control of our lives. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. God is in control. He's sovereign. I think it's also a reminder this morning that God isn't in a hurry. God is not in a hurry. He took time molding Joseph into the man he became. He took time in bringing Jacob and his family into Egypt. He took time building them to a mighty nation. 400 years! He even took time in delivering them through the plagues and the whole process to bring them out with a mighty hand. Listen, God is not in a hurry, but we are. I am! Aren't you? A lot of you resist blowing the horn and getting out of the church parking lot. I'm sure of it. Move it, Granny. I'm in a hurry. Get to the restaurant. Hurry up. Time's ticking. We're in a hurry. God isn't. Listen, His time, His time is perfect. And perhaps you're growing weary and well-doing this morning. Let me encourage you. Don't give up. Don't give up. You know, a mushroom grows a lot quicker than an oak tree. Which one would you rather be? A mushroom or an oak tree? It's also a reminder that God, where God guides, God provides. What God orders, God pays for. He prepared the way for Jacob and his family to enter Egypt. Not in poverty. They were coming into prosperity. They were coming in where Joseph was a ruler. It's a reminder that when God sends us, he will accompany us. He said to Jacob there, What? I will be with you. Listen, if God sends you, He's with you. What a blessing that is. It's a reminder today, I think, really, of the importance of family. Family. Joseph said to his family, Come to me. I'll take care of you. I will nourish you. In essence, you know what Joseph said to his family? He said these words I love you. I love you. Let me ask you today, friend, do you love your family? Don't answer aloud, but just think in your own heart. Do you love your family? Now, I take for granted you love your immediate family. I take for granted you love your wife, your husband, your children. But I want to talk about your extended family for a moment. say, oh boy. I want to talk about your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, your in-laws, your outlaws. Do you love them? But preacher, you don't know my family. No, I don't. Remember what I said the opening message? Some family trees have beautiful leaves and some have just a bunch of nuts. Maybe you say, well, that's mine. Now, listen, I understand that extended families may have things in them, may do things that cause you alarm and concern. I understand their lifestyles may not be what you want your children to emulate. I understand they may even live ungodly lifestyles. They may be as different from you as they can possibly be, and you may not want to go on vacation with them. And I understand that. But I asked this question this morning. Do you love them? Have you chosen to love them as Jesus loves them? I want to clue you in on something, beloved. Jesus loves them and died for them, too. Whether you like them, whether you loathe them, Jesus died for them. And there you sit this morning. You say, well, I'm a child of God, and yet you don't love them. And you know what? They probably know that. Let me ask you something. How do you ever plan to win them to the Lord Jesus Christ like that? You're a child of God, and you could care less about them. And they know that. How are you going to win them to the Lord? I'm speaking to some folks today that I'd say need to come clean before God. And you need to go and make amends with some family members. Now listen, you don't have to adopt their lifestyle. You don't have to live like them. You don't have to be ungodly. But you must love them like Jesus loves them. Let them know that. Oh, but they wronged me, preacher. They did me wrong. Let's talk about Joseph's brothers for a moment. Want to talk about wrong? Let's talk about wrong for a moment. Have they ever sold you into slavery? Have they ever mistreated you? Have they ever told people, you're dead? And yet, what's Joseph say? I forgive you. I love you. I'm going to nourish you. I care about you. Come to me. It might be a family member or friend you've had a falling out with. You need to seek reconciliation. You need to be the person to go and make things right. And show them the love of the Lord Jesus. In an interview with Will Norton, Jr., Best-selling author, John Grisham, recalls, he said, one of my best friends in college died when he was just 25. He said, just a few years after we had finished Mississippi State University. Grisham said, I was in law school and he called me one day and wanted to get together. So we had lunch and he told me he had terminal cancer. I couldn't believe it. Grisham said, I asked him, what do you do when you realize that you're about to die? This friend said, it's real simple. You get things right with God. And you spend as much time with those you love as you can. Then you settle up with everybody else. Then that friend said, you know, really, you ought to live every day like you only have a few more days to live. That's a wise counsel, isn't it? You get things right with God. You make sure you're his child by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus alone. You spend as much time with those you love as you can. And then you settle up with everybody else. I wonder today, are you carrying along a burden? Because there's some reconciliation needed in the life of your family. Your friendships. Your acquaintances. Your extended family. I wonder today, would you allow the Lord to settle those things in your heart? And you come clean with God today. And then you leave this place and you go and you make amends with that person or those people. Joseph is a sterling example. No hatred, no grudges, no bitterness. The love of God, the love of God, the love of Jesus displayed and acted out in regards to his family and those who had ultimately harmed him. Now, Father, I pray that you'll work today in our invitation. I pray, Lord, you know the needs. You know the problems that are present here. I pray if anybody here does not know Jesus, they'll come today in a saving knowledge of him. I pray others might walk this aisle today and come and come clean with you and then go out to this place and come clean with others. Lord, we don't want to become like the world. We don't want to do ungodly things. But we realize we must show the love of Jesus. We must choose to love these people. Like Jesus does. Work in the invitation I pray. Amen and amen.